Folks, take it from me, NBA legend Bill Walton. Like all great experiments in American history, the Three and D Love podcast will revolutionize your life. Welcome to the Three and D Love NBA podcast. Thanks for joining us, and I'm your host, Michael Eaney. We're joined, as always, by the brother, Ryan Eaney, and, of course, our namesake, the venerable D-Love, Derek Lovegren. Here we go. We have a very special guest joining us today, and one that our primary fan base, Blazer fans, will appreciate. I can speak confidently on behalf of Blazer fans when I say that we hold Brian Grant in our hearts as being on the short list of all-time favorite Blazers. Brian wrote a book with Rick Buecher called Rebound, Soaring in the NBA, Battling Parkinson's, and Finding What Really Matters. We learn about Brian's upbringing, the type of adversity he faced in his childhood and through college and the NBA, and the hardships of living with Parkinson's. Uh, While Brian gives an honest and vulnerable account of his struggles, he also talks about all he's learned along the way and shares a lot of wisdom. It's an amazing and inspiring story. Brian, thanks so much for coming on today. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. And Brett, can you you know tell us just more about the the orange origins of the book and and kind of what led you to want to share your story with others in this way? Well, you know, I knew that I always had an interesting story as far as some of the things that took place to get me here. It, and if they didn't happen, I absolutely would not have been here. But you know, it was after retiring, going through divorce, being diagnosed with Parkinson's. I started to realize, okay, I can put this in a book and it can really help some people. But in order to do that, that means I would have to be totally honest. And not that I've lied in the past because I haven't, but I wasn't ready to go there yet. And I think after COVID, losing my father, losing six or seven friends uh, during the pandemic and coming out of it, I, I think I realized that I don't have a lot of time I may not have a lot of time so I need to kind of get this out while I'm still here and so went through the process and ended up hiring Rick because he was the actual person that told the world that I had Parkinson's when I was diagnosed back in 2008 yeah and you know obviously you were like you said you're willing to be vulnerable in the book vulnerable in the book and talk about you know your personal struggles your demons you're dealing with as you went through it was it i mean was it hard to share this in a book or was it also kind of therapeutic for you in a way to be able to get this out there it was therapeutic but it was difficult but it was very therapeutic you know what i realized when i was rick and i were finishing up the book he got pretty emotional and i asked him what's wrong and he says I'm just happy for you. And I go, why? He goes, because it seems like you've been carrying the weight of what you've done to individuals and to yourself. And now you're finally getting it off your chest. You're telling somebody, you're you're telling the world. And I think this is going to be the change you've been looking for because you blamed yourself for losing the love of your life from, you know, cheating. And it also gave me an opportunity to, to, clear up some things, you know, because people thought that, you know, my first wife left me because I had Parkinson's, which is absolutely not true. I mean, she left me because I did a lot of foul shit to her. You know, are we cussing on there? Yeah. No, (laughs) of course, my friends. Hey, we're we're real talk around here. Yeah. Foul shit. You know, I, I was out there, man. I was way out there. 
but she stayed for as long as she could. And then nine months of depression, that, that'd sink anybody, especially when you're a verbally abusive person and you're going through depression and don't want to admit it. So it, it, it was therapeutic and it gave me a way to forgive myself, I think. Well, Brian, I'm curious. I've had my own journey with, you know, 12 step programs. It, I mean, it almost felt like a, like a really big fourth step where you're writing all these, you're kind of coming to, to grips with all these different things in your own journey. And I know when I've gone through my own process coming out the other side of that, I, I felt a lot of freedom. I mean, coming out of this book and now doing media and press and even relating to your children and your, you know, your ex-wives. And I mean, it, are, do you feel a sense of freedom and release from this in terms of that weight being lifted and kind of going, okay, it's all there, right? I mean, obviously you've done a lot of work in the last you know, decade, you know, and you outline a lot of that in the book, but uh, I got to imagine you found a lot of freedom in that process. Is that what you've, you've experienced? I have. And, uh, you know, there are several programs out there that help you with addiction. And if someone's having issues with it, I would say go and look into those programs. There's 12 steps, there's all kinds of different ones, as you know. And um, it, 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 it works if you work it, you know. Amen. And it... Uh, just to, to be present after being, a, you know, on hiatus for so many years, it, it's amazing. And um, this book really gave me an opportunity to, to figure out how to heal, to figure out how to heal. I don't want to go too much into the, the other thing, um, but I just want to say that there is help out there for people. Yep, I understand. It, it seems like when, you know, when you right after you retired, it was, it was kind of the, like the perfect storm of things that were happening. I mean, hard enough as, as an athlete, you give your heart and soul to basketball and you know, that end of that part of your, of your basketball career, would just imagine being very tough in and of itself, but it sounds like the, the depression part that kind of uh, was tied in with the Parkinson's um, you know, you, you were diagnosed, I think shortly after, you retired and just seemed like the, the timing of that, like it all kind of hits you at, at once and you just address it in the first, in the first chapter. Yeah. I mean, you know, with, with the, with the PD, with retiring, uh, when I was retiring, I spoke to Vinny Del Negro and he asked me what I was planning on doing. I told him, he said, well, B, there's not that much golf. There's not that much fishing in a day to occupy your time. You need to find something that you consistently do on a daily basis because we all go through depression. So I thought when I started feeling weird, which was depression, I thought, oh, well, this must be what Vinny's talking about. But mine just kept going deeper and deeper and deeper. And it wasn't until later when I was diagnosed and told my neurologist about the depression. And he says, with most Parkinson's patients, the way we find out is it starts off with depression because the brain by that point, the dopamine producing cells 80% of them are already dead and you're operating on 20 and that's to give you good feeling about anything. You know, it's like now, you know, you only got 20% of those cells left and that and serotonin are what make you feel good. Uh, and you're losing that and it just sends you off the edge. 
And I know, you know, you talked just at several different points in, in the book about the, you know, kind of adversity that you face in your life and how, how you've dealt with that, which was always, you know, working harder if you needed to outwork everyone or, or, or prove people wrong, you know, the things that motivated you. But like with, with Parkinson's, it's, it's, a, it's a whole different beast that you've talked about that just, just hard, hard work, which even you talk about how you tried trying to figure out, you know, solutions and getting the right remedies for, for everything. Um, but, but it's kind of a whole different approach that you're having to take, you know, emotionally and all that. Can you share a little bit about kind of that distinction between how you've been used to handling problems in your life versus now having a whole different different mindset uh, and attitude to battle Parkinson's. Yeah. And as you probably can believe that change doesn't come overnight. I mean, you've been doing something all your life, basketball, and this is how you've been successful. And this is, these are the tools that you were able to use to have some success in the NBA. And now you come up against something where surgery is not going, I mean, it can help with some symptoms, but it's not going to cure it. Uh, medications can help with the, with the symptoms, but it's not going to cure it. So you go from being in that fast race to being in that marathon, and they tell you it's not a sprint, it's a marathon, to moving from that to you're in a no-win situation. You know, that's that, you enter into a race where you're going to be defeated at some point. So you got to learn, I've had to learn how to pick and choose my battles and realize that every battle that I win at the end of it, I'm going to eventually lose the war. And that can, I mean, shit, just saying that out loud can make you go into depression, you know, like, wow. But I've got kids, you know, I got people who depend on me, so I got to be there for them. Even if I don't want to be there for myself, but I do want to be there for myself too. Absolutely. Well, well said. And um, I know and I do want to, we want to get into talk basketball as well. I know this is, you know, heavy stuff. Um, you know, you, I know, you've said it even at, you know, at this stage, obviously you've been living with this for a long time. Um, but even now you still kind of have the why me moments, you know, um, mm-hmm. I'm wondering like when, and I know you, you know, interact with a lot of people, you've, you've raised awareness, um, support for, for Parkinson's, like when you, um, come across people who maybe maybe have more recently been diagnosed and are, are really kind of asking that question all the time of why me? Um, how do you kind of, do you have a way of maybe coaching or kind of counseling through someone as part of it? And then there's, there's an individual part to the journey, even though you want pe- people to get support and help, but how would you kind of kind of coach someone through that that's been more like newly diagnosed with Parkinson's? Well, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind depending upon their diagnosis. Um, I tell them, hey, you know what? Parkinson's isn't something I wanted either. And I don't I don't like having Parkinson's, but I could have ALS or I could have something where you're coming to your kids now saying, I have Parkinson's, we, we can read up about it, but I'm gonna be here but we could have been diagnosed with something that says I, I might only be around for a couple of years. So that's, that's the blessing that I found for myself. And I try to share that with people. And then there's just all kinds of other things that come up like, Oh my God, my husband just left me or my wife just left me. And what am I going to do about this or that? 
And those are things that are issues, yeah, to worry about. But the only thing you can do is what you can do. And right now, the number one thing that you need to focus on is you and getting a routine, finding the right meds so that you can have a good quality of life for your significant other and your kids. That's that's the main thing. The fact that we, we still get to be here. Yeah, we trip over a lot of stuff. And yeah, I hate the fact that sometimes I can't smile. I'm just like, <laughs> are you happy? Yeah, I'm, can't you see this? Oh, <laughs> um, but uh, we get to be here. Well said. And, and, and I think that was a theme you were hitting on too. Like you talked about some of the, I don't know if silver linings is a way to put it, but some of the things that you've been able to realize that have come into your life as, as even though, as you said, I think you even just said it sucks, all this, the hardships and everything you're having to do. But um, obviously you've had some unique experiences, even like the whole story with, with climbing Mount St. Helens with, you know, others who have a diagnosis. I mean, some, some really just inspirational uh, stories of, of, uh, at least some of the some of the silver linings in your life. Yeah, I mean, climbing Mount St. Helens was a crazy idea. <laughs> I want to just say it. <laughs> that's painful. I mean, if, if you watch if you watch the video on YouTube, there's a point that shows the real me going up the hill. It's like when I'm taking little baby steps, straight legs, looking. I look like a baby who just learned how to walk. <laughs> I mean, it it was. I'm glad I did it, but it was one of the hardest things I've, I've ever done. And, you know, I take my hats off, my hat off to the other patients that were there because a couple of them probably shouldn't have had any business going up and down that mountain, but they did do it. And it was just like, like one of those days where you kind of felt normal, like, yeah, I can do this. Like, I don't want to do it again, but I can do this. <laughs> <laughs> like you said, the, the coming down is the hardest part, right? We think oh. it's the climbing up, but like that can be hardest on the joints and everything when you're coming down the mountain. Yeah, man. It was tough coming down because it just was so long. And then you get to the bottom and you hit the tree line. You're like, oh, I made it. And then you forget. That's, I think we were hiking for like two hours before we got to the mountain. And it was like every turn I'd come around – I tell my girlfriend, like, I'm gonna tell you right now. So every time we get to a, to a, a bend in the woods, I'll be like, I'm telling you right now, that damn parking lot isn't around this next bend. <laughs> yeah. I'm sitting down, I ain't getting up. You're gonna have to go get a four wheeler to come get me. <laughs> I did that about five or six times. And then the one time I was getting ready to sit down, and she goes there and goes, it's over here. And I'm like, yes. Got there, jumped in the back, back of, uh, the Escalade, kicked the window thing open and just have my feet outside and said, just take me home. <laughs> I was beat up, man. I was beat up. But it's it's one of those things that I was happy that I pushed myself through it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that was, that was amazing. Well, it's, a, it's a remarkable story and i'll tell you what as a, as someone who's not particularly fond of hiking myself i think i've had those experiences coming down a mountain at times where i'm kind of like it better be around this next bend so i can't even <laughs> imagine i think what you, what you yeah. and, and i'm a big guy and i'm like i'm, I'm a mini miniature compared to you so I, you know I, I i commend you to to do what you did i mean it's just a remarkable story climbing mount st helens uh and, and how you organized i mean what a what a cool testimony to the work you put in well i tell you what i'm glad they got youtube out there because 
I think that's be the only time I'll see that mountain again is watching the video. <laughs> <laughs> Try white water rafting or something next time. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe uh, just switch gears a little bit and talk about about your basketball career. Um, I really enjoyed just that whole story too. It, it seemed like your your basketball career was kind of a an evolution, like you know, early on playing with whether relatives or people you lived around you were you were kind of dismissed and not really invited into games and then you kind of had this breakthrough um you know as, as you got older where you know you're playing in these big games and and start to dunk the ball and and then but also kind of a latecomer in, in high school too and then you know not everything just came together quickly at xavier can you tell a little bit about kind of that progression for you and also like when you kind of came to a point where you knew that you know hey I could have a, a future here a career you know make it to the NBA well the progression for me was I I totally sucked when I was younger <laughs> I, I didn't I didn't watch sports I didn't have a team I knew who Dr. J was because he had you know commercials but I didn't really know any anything about basketball I played football Pop Warner until I was 13 and that's when uh I went out for basketball. I couldn't even make a layup, man. It was it, it was funny because I was like two or three inches taller than everybody. These big, long arms, this long legs, butt on his back kid. And I just wasn't any good. I went out my freshman year and made the team, but I didn't play that much. But uh, I remember when I left for the summer, uh, and I was like 5'10 and a half, came back. I was almost 6'4". So I couldn't play my sophomore year because I had Osgood sliders. We out, we go too fast. Oh yeah. And junior year, I get kicked off the team. So I'm kicked off the team. I'm smoking a lot of bud, drinking during school nights. And I almost failed out of high school my junior year. And it was a chance encounter with my mother's windshield that turned things around. You know, a University of Cincinnati commercial came on, and after one of us said, I'm going to college. And she slammed on the brakes, and I swear, if I hadn't put my hands up, my head would have just went. And she said, are you all right? I go, yeah, what happened? What are you doing? She goes, what'd you say? And I go, what happened? I said, no, what'd you say before that? And I go, I'm going to college. And she just gave me the one, you ain't going to college. You ain't going to be <laughs> shit. Your dad ain't shit. You ain't shit. And I was like, oh. And so from that point, I was dedicated to showing my mother that I could graduate from high school. And I started playing basketball at these outdoor courts, not knowing that my uncle had called these cats that play and told them, I want you to rough him up. I want and he's going to say that he's going to come get me, but I'm telling y'all to rough, rough him up. So like for the first three weeks, I would go out there and get bloodied up. I mean, I come home bloodied up. My mom's like, Okay, enough's enough. Mm-hmm. So that fourth week, I think there was a play. And I went down, somebody's under the basket and tried to jump, and I dunked it. And I just remember how that felt. And everybody that was around the fence team was like, yeah, 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 cheering. So I just said, shit, I'm going to dunk everything from now on. And so basketball became something that I thought I could at least play in high school. And then I got in trouble in high school. You know, I had this thing happen with my American history teacher where I was able to correct some answers and had a great 
senior year of basketball, we, we should have won state, but, you know, things don't always happen that way. Go to Xavier, didn't think I'd play in Xavier, ended up starting every game. And you asked when I thought that I might be able to have some kind of career out of this. It wasn't when I finished my senior year. When I finished my senior year, I was like, man, I can get a job at Procter & Gamble. I can get a job at General Electric, at Jim Beam, because we had so many alumni in the top offices of those places. And I was just getting ready to start working and uh, three agents came down, wanted to talk to me, two didn't believe that I should do anything. And the other one said, if I don't, uh, it'd be the biggest mistake of my life. Long story short, I go out there, I play well, and I go from a late second round to overseas player to the eighth pick in the draft. <laughs> Amazing. So, I mean, that in itself is just crazy. It's crazy. Yeah, absolutely. I think like in the book, I think you revealed later that uh, Uncle John was rigging those those games. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, but, he was going to call ahead, tell him, yeah, go ahead and do it. He's going to say he's going to get me, but I'm telling you to do it. Yeah. <laughs> and one of the interesting things, the interesting stories, um, when you were going through workouts for the draft, um, it was just to give our listeners a little bit of, backstory here but when you worked out for for the lakers and jerry west it was like the night before when you were working out for the kings you went out to dinner and had a huge steak dinner. i think you were challenged to eat it so a big size 48 hours yeah and so you were not yourself when you showed up and jerry west was picking up right away that's that you were not looking good out there and was really pissed off have you ever did you ever get a chance to clear the air at all with uh, oh yeah with okay. yeah we did i mean he, he saw me like i don't know if it was after my rookie season or the next season but when i saw him he said hold on peace treaty you know because i would never go and cuss jerry west out you know i would never go i wouldn't be that disrespectful no matter if i thought he did me wrong or not but I will dunk the ball and run past where he's sitting going. <laughs> <laughs> and it's kind of like, you got to read my lips to know what I'm saying. And I'm squinting so hard. So I'm thinking you can't, but uh, I saw him and he goes, I just want to tell you, I was wrong. You turned into a fine player. I go, thanks, Jerry. That means a lot. And he goes, why didn't you tell me about the 48 ounce steak? I'm like, I'm like, I said, I don't know. And I was thinking to myself, would it have mattered? Yeah, I don't think it would have. <laughs> You'd probably be just stupid for eating the damn steak. <laughs> that's hilarious. I think we, I we like know from just... his... Oh, go ahead, Michael. No, go ahead, Derek. No, I was just saying, we know from his track record that Jerry West is not wrong very often. So to, for him to say, you know, I was wrong, is, uh, that's pretty amazing. Well, just it feels like a strategy more teams should should take advantage of is taking out draft prospects, you know, on the night before they go visit other teams, is taking them out to a yeah. big dinner, you know. I mean, the bell tolls the next day for, for a 48-ounce steak. I mean, that could uh, that could help tank a draft prospect if you're trying to get someone to drop to eight. You know, I, I don't know if Sacramento thought that if he has a good workout for them the way he did for us, I could see them trying to trade up from – they had the 10th pick. You know, I don't know what their thinking was. They, they had to pick before L.A. They were eighth. Yeah. L.A. was 10th. But they got me to eat that steak. <laughs> 
<laughs> maybe they pulled like an uncle john and it was all rigged and you know ahead of time and you were set maybe, up to for that stage <laughs> you never know i mean everybody tends to think it's just like talent gets you in but i've seen a lot of guys who are really talented that never made it they're way better than me some you know it takes talent it takes being in the right place at the right time and a little bit of luck yeah. um one of the other parts of the book that uh, i guess on the topic of lakers or former lakers but um the part about like your relationship with pat riley and and how close you were to him actually when i was reading the book i i stopped and i told my my wife about you know the part where pat riley had the forever card mm -hmm. that you know if you need something i, I got a little teary-eyed actually uh, explaining to my wife i just thought it was really cool um and and obviously someone that was there for you that that, that forever card was, was a real thing but can, can you talk a little bit about kind of your your relationship with with pat riley and how that's been sustained over the years you know when Shaq announced that he wanted to leave the Lakers and the two teams he'd go to were Miami and Dallas, I was like, Gina, pack your stuff. We're getting traded. She's like, you don't know that. I go, I know that, you know. And so it really touched me to see how hard it was for Coach to trade me. I mean, he wrote me a letter on the back of an envelope, this long letter. And that's when you put the forever card in there. And it was just like, you know, one of them, uh, just one of them moments that you can't believe. He didn't have to do that. He's traded several people. He's had some deals fall through, but he took the time to write that letter. And it was the right move for the Heat because friend friendship or, or workmanship between two people he still has a job to bring a championship there, even though we had a good team, but that team was probably four years away from winning a championship, three or four years and, or have an opportunity to win. But when you bring Shaq in, that instantly gives you an opportunity that year because he can change the game like that. And they should have won it the first year. They should have, they should have won it, but uh, they won it the second year, and I was just—I ha was happy for him. I was happy for the Arisons. I was happy for everybody in that organization because they were so good to me. And they were good to my family, and so I hadn't had no animosity. You know, at first I was like, "Man, I'm going to L.A. God, I gotta go to L.A." You know, but once getting there, we were greeted by Kobe at the at the the signing in our jerseys. I looked at it as an opportunity to get to play with Kobe, you know, damn. I get to see what this guy is all about. I know what he's about on the on game days, but what does he really do? And let me tell you, man, the guy, I'm not saying this because he passed. I'm saying it's because it's true. He was one of the hardest workers I've ever seen at the way he approached the game. He'd be the first one there. And that's coming from Newport Beach every morning. Uh, last one to leave always competitive there was never a moment where he let down say all right now you get you get this it's like ah, oh, let's do it again you know and i i felt really blessed to have gotten an opportunity to get to know him behind the scenes a little bit too and um yeah that's all i really want to say about that he was a hell of a guy Kicked our butts in 2000. I know, right? <laughs> yeah. Speaking speaking of the, those years, the Blazer years, uh, it's funny. I when I saw 
looked at your career and how you played for the Blazers for three years, like it, it, it felt like it was longer. I think it was because it, like, it felt like those were really special years. Like, you know, year, I think year number two was when you guys, uh, I think dethroned the jazz in the Western conference, then won the Western conference two years in a row, beat them in, in the second round. Obviously that was really memorable. Even your, you and you and Carl Malone uh, going, going head to head. Um, but that was just a really special run. And then, you know, um, obviously the next year, we, we talked about this a little before we went on the air, but, um, you know, the, the, the heartbreaking game seven loss on the road to, to the Lakers, which we've talked about in the podcast before the, the some of the details of all of that. But, um, when you kind of look back on your, you know, um, time with, with the Blazers, you know, how do you kind of, how do you think, what, what kind of memories kind of jump out at you from, from that period? I mean, there are a lot of memories. I mean, just getting there and you know, becoming part of a team that was so talented. I mean, my first year I was there, it was talented, but then that second and third year, it was just talent overload. You know, uh, had some really great moments with Rashid and Gary Trent when I first got here. Um, you know, there were other things that, you know, played out in my time here when I you know, got to meet three young people who were suffering from cancer. And in all honesty, I, I think I might say it in the book, but this is the first time I said it on the podcast, those kids really helped me just as much as I helped them because I was harboring a secret from my wife that, you know, I cheated and as a result, I, I had a son. And if you look back at the games the first year when I was in Portland, people thought I was crazy because I was. <laughs> I mean, that was like my only outlet. You know, I couldn't go and tell people because when it came out, I wouldn't want her to be like, you knew and didn't tell me, you know. So I, my only outlet was on the court. So it was just like, A, B, have a good game. Give me the rebound. So, yeah, that was, there's some great memories and then there's some not so good memories, but like we said, that's life. Yeah. Absolutely. One of the things that with your, just with your game itself, uh, I don't I'll let you answer a question, uh, ask a question too, but like um, you're talking in the book about how, you know, you know, run down the court, Duncan and the boards playing defense. It was kind of your MO for a while. But I remember you as just like having this deadly uh, 18-foot, 20-foot jumper. Did, was that something you like more refined when you came to the Blazers or was that something that was actually in the works? But I don't remember watching you a lot with Sacramento, just some vague memories. But Yeah, I mean, I could hit that shot. Uh, but I was more comfortable in inside, doing inside plays and, and moves. But you know, people were starting to sag off of me, because, you know, to help out on Sabonis or, or Rashid or if we're posting JR. So I'm getting the ball and I, I'm sitting here doing this when I should be doing that. And so I started shooting more. And I think once my confidence kicked in, you know, that's when I started stroking it. But as far as big men with a stroke, Rashid is a one. I mean, because I came here, he was a four. And they bumped him to three, so he's playing a smaller position, and they're just leaving him wide open on threes. And she, she showed him he can shoot threes too. <laughs> yeah. 
uh, Brian, you, in the book, you you briefly talk about this split in the in the team, kind of the chemistry. There's kind of these two cliques in some ways, and I I've heard about those two dynamics before in a number of different books I've read articles over the years, but I'd never heard them described as the suits and the sweatsuits, which yeah. I which I got a kick out of. It cracked the young guys with the sweatsuits and the old guy, you know, the Pippin crew was the with the suits. I, <laughs> I'm curious though, how did you, as a relative young guy in your years in Portland, find yourself in kind of the nexus in between those two groups? I mean, you kind of you speak of how you floated between them, but how did you find yourself in that position? Because when I first got there, it was Rashid and, and Gary Trent and Jr. Sometimes I would hang with them. And once Scotty made it in, um, I think did we get Steve Smith my second year? Or was he only there? He was second year. So once they came into play, it was like guys that didn't want to wear suits. You know, we wanted to be comfortable in sweatsuits kind of sitting in the back. <laughs> and then Scotty and Greg Anthony, Steve Smith, guys like that, uh, they always were suited. You know, they're, they're always wearing slacks and stuff. And so I can hang out with them to be talking about what's going on. And then the, I go back to the back, like, what are we going to do today? We're going to all get dinner. They'd be like, what, what the suits say? I'll be like, they want to get some dinner. <laughs> all right, well, tell them we find some place to get dinner. Then they're paying or something like that. <laughs> but it, it, it was it was a divide. But it wasn't like I don't like you, I hate you. It was just that I'm gonna wear my tracksuit. The other guys was like, you need to be a little more professional. It's like until you until we had to, where you were getting fined, they, they kept with sweatsuits, and some of them took some fines. Like I just take the fine. Yeah, I for, I, for, I forgot the Iverson rule basically came into right in that era, right? Yeah, the where you, with the dress code. Yeah, um, he didn't like it. We didn't like it either. But. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, it, it it certainly had some some undertones. Um, Brent, I'm also curious. You know, obviously, you have three you know remarkable years in Portland, and and in the long run, have you know at least. In, in, in the seemingly the majority of your time made Portland sort of a home, right? And that's, you raise your kids and, you know, you're in West Lynn. I, I think, what has that been? How has that experience been for you? It's something on the podcast we've talked about, all three of us being from Portland. Obviously, there's a number of Blazers that have made their long-term homes in Portland. And Portland's, I think, a unique, a unique place to live for, a, you know, a, you know, a, for 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 African American folks in general, but also for former Blazers, I think there's a place in in a lot of fans' hearts. But also, there's some complications. You speak to some of the experience your kids have had, not having been Blazers per se, obviously, but um, you know, living and growing up in West Lynn. I mean, what has that experience been like for you and your family uh, in a place like Portland, Oregon? For the most part, it's been wonderful. I mean, it's. It's, it's a nice community out here, but it's not, I don't know if it's the right word, devoid of having its issues. Uh, you know, when my son Jaden was in junior high, I think he was going to Athey Creek. So he was going to Athey Creek at the time and, you know, he was on the playground and a kid called him the N-word. And he didn't do anything about it. Next day he goes back to school same kid 
causing the N-word, but his buddy that was with him yesterday, and his buddy's white, drilled the kid. Oh, man. And uh, <laughs> that kid and the kid that said the word got suspended. And then uh, my son went in and said that he had done it the day before. Now, we're in the 2000s, you know, it's two, you know 2000s. For me, it was hard for me to wrap my head around that because when I grew up, if somebody called you that and you didn't throw down, you was going to get it from your cousins. You are going to get it from your parents. And if you were going to grandma's house after school, she was going <laughs> to kick off in your ass and, and send you back looking for the kid. So I'm coming from that mentality. And I'm like, what do you mean you told the principal, but you didn't do anything? He goes, they already did something. And I was just like, Argh! and you know, my buddy Raphael called me up. He's Jaden's godfather. And he was just like, D, can't get mad, man. They're not growing up like we did. It's different times. And with you, you know, your family would have dealt with you if you didn't deal with it. Same with me, but this is not the era that they're growing. They're not growing up around seven or eight cousins fighting every day, each other and then fighting somebody. And so I got it. I got it, but it's, it's one thing when somebody does something to you, but when someone does something to your kid, it, it, that's a new ball game, buddy. You know, it was a kid. Now, if it had been an adult, then I'd have definitely, you, we'd have been talking. You remember that time you went to jail, Brian? And, uh, <laughs> but uh, no, it, it worked itself out. And Jaden now is, I'm so proud of that kid. I'm proud of all my kids, but, uh, you know, he's, he's a very articulate individual and knows where he's going and how to get there if that makes any sense to you yeah I, I will i will say it's amazing to watch you know that genesis that you're talking about right and their experience being so different than what you grew up with right and then you know i in in reading your book and doing a little bit of research for our conversation today right seeing what they did in in june of last year right when all of the protests were going on and sort of leading kind of a, a protest there themselves and bringing in a guy by the name of Michael Fesser in Portland to, to talk. And obviously there's a lot of number of other folks, I think, speaking, but it's just remarkable to see two of your sons sort of leading the charge uh, among one of the you know activities in Portland to really lead the change. I mean, that's, I think that's just a really cool testament to you and your family and, and the experiences that you've provided for them. And um, they're obviously remarkable young men and, and, have a bright future ahead of them. It was really fun to see that. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm super proud of them. Um, you know, they did it the way it's supposed to be done. You talk about it, bring awareness to it. There were almost 600 people that ended up being on that one little walk. It was, it was amazing to see that come together. And I tell you, I had just, I spoke at it, but I was scared to speak because my son speaks so damn well. I was like, damn, I can't be out there mumbling, bumbling, stumbling, you know, and he's up here articulately just conveying the message, getting the crowd fired up, but I'm proud of them. I'm proud of them. You know, when they first told me they wanted to do it, I was kind of like, hmm, wait a minute. I'm, I'm thinking, I don't want y'all to bring heat down on you because you bring it up, but that's just old thinking too. Like you got a platform, use it. And that's exactly what they did. 
And uh, maybe just circle back to, to your platform again with, you know, raising um, awareness with Parkinson's. You, you talked in the book about how, um, you know, there is a lot of misinformation um, about Parkinson's. If, if you were like maybe just pinpoint things that you'd want just the general public to be more aware of, more informed about when it comes to Parkinson's, I guess, yeah, maybe what are some of those maybe misconceptions or misinformation that's out there? I think the biggest misconception is thinking that Parkinson's is tremor. That that's mostly what people deal with. The tremor is just one part of it. Um, you have rigidity where your body stiffens up. You have dystonia when your feet start to curl under. Um, uh, what's the other one? I'm People have problems with their bowels, um, swallowing. Like the thing that I've noticed, my kids are starting to notice, like when I eat, they're like, make sure you eat, chew your food and then swallow because I, I just love to eat. And I find myself choking on food a lot because I got to take time to let my, you know, let the food go down before I go into the next one and take a breath. So, when you see a Parkinson's patient, it's oh, they just shake a lot. And there's a lot more going on than what you see. And uh, depression's one of them. It's another one. That's a big one. Um, I, I feel people are getting more and more educated about it because more and more people are turning are being diagnosed every day with PD. I don't know, you know, the environment, whatever, but there, there are a ton of people who are newly diagnosed. No, this has been great. I mean, Brian, I, I'm so appreciative of your your work in the community. I mean, I think that's something you do sort of speak to in the book is your journey of how you've embraced the PD community. I mean, I think that has been, um, I think, a number of uh, ways you sort of refer to this sort of ego dynamic that can play into some of those things, right? You, 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 I think you, you highlight a conversation um, you had sort of early in the process about your involvement and how willing you you were preparing yourself to be to be vulnerable right and and it feels like this book i mean you've obviously taken large steps along the way but this book felt like a culmination of sort of looking into your journey and your experience and the hope that comes you know through the work you've put in so i, I don't know I, I just i can't take but be encouraged from um, your story and your experiences, man. It's been, it's, it's a certainly an amazing, amazing journey. Yeah. I mean, it's one thing that we all have to deal with, whether we have Parkinson's or not, as our body starts to change because we're getting older. I turned 50 next year, fellas. I can't, oh, believe, I'm about to be 50. And so, yeah, I mean, with, with PD, I mean, the best thing that Michael J. Fox said to me is, yeah, I lose the vanity, bro. And I said, well, you know that? He goes, I sympathize with you because you're an athlete, somebody whose body has served them well for years, and now it's slowly being taken away. And that's the best analogy you can give it. Parkinson's starts to strip things from you slowly, sometimes slowly, sometimes quickly. It's been slow for me. And the frustration and anxiety that can come with that. I mean, just like going to take a leak, dude. It, you know, it's like I got to – make sure everything's cool or else I'm going to spray the wall you know, yeah. from tremoring. Um, 
it's just little things you wouldn't even believe. And mm. uh, if your ego is in the way, I mean, it's going to keep you from a lot of good things, mainly the Parkinson's community in itself, because I will say this in the very beginning, it was hard going to events or going to certain groups because there's a picture of what I might become in a few years or a long time from now. This is what I may end up with. And it's, it's hard to wrap your head around, but eventually you do and you quit feeling sorry for yourself and you open up to other patients and you realize they have the same fears, you know, and this is how they're dealing with it. Won't you try this? Yeah. It seems like some of the, like the kind of the darker periods for you was when you were like isolating yourself and maybe other people were wanting to reach out, but, and which can be obviously a tendency with, I mean, anybody that's going through a struggle to isolate yourself and just feel very, very alone in that. But it seems like when you were able to accept help and then, and, and being willing to, you know, reach out and have that community support it just seems like that that was a really really pivotal pivotal thing for you it, it, it was because the thing that i found out and i think a lot of PD patients have found out is that you're going to end up learning a lot more about this disease from other pd patients because when you see the neurologist you see them you're there for half hour 45 minutes and you may make a few changes on your meds you may not come back and see me in three to six months. And over that three to six months, so many things can change. The, the way you react to the medication, everything can change. And so it wasn't until I kind of threw myself into a group, we call it movers and shakers, that A, I had a place where I could come and talk to guys and see what they're taking and see you know, what things are working, what things aren't working with the understanding that things may work for you guys but not work for me because of the makeup of our brains. Hmm. But then one of the biggest things is having the caregivers, you know, the significant others meeting and them having an outlet to talk, talk it out. Cause we forget about them, man. We just lay it all on them. Like you're supposed to handle this. I'm, I'm handling the PD. Uh, but when you meet and you talk it out and you share moments and tears and laughs, then it, you know, it makes both sides more receptive to the things that they're having to deal with. Well, it's as a, a, I mean, it's a wonderful book. I, I couldn't put it down, not, not blowing smoke. It was just really good read. Um, you know, just a lot of great stories and, and just, again, you know, the, the wisdom, um, of, you know, the, just the things that you've gone through and the life lessons and all the, all the relationships and even with the, the struggles, just all the triumphs along the way. So highly recommend uh, this book to anyone, not just Blazer fans, but anyone. Um, it's a great read and you'll, you'll take uh, away a lot from it. So uh, thank you so much, Brian, for, for making the time. This was a real pleasure for us to have you on. No problem. Pleasure's all mine, fellas. Thank you. Thanks, Brian. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right, okay. guys. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks for joining us at the 3ND Love NBA Podcast. We'll be back next time. But until then, remember, throw it down, big man. This isn't just a great podcast. It's a triumph of the human spirit. <laughs>